Hi, I'm Sergio. And I'm Alex. And this is the IPHO Podcast. Each episode, we'll be hosting professionals with diverse backgrounds from across the industry. We have two goals, to bring you timely, relevant insights from across the healthcare landscape and information that can help support your professional growth. What non-traditional career opportunities exist for pharmacists, and how can I stand out from other candidates? How is COVID impacting the way we develop medications and support patients? What social inequalities exist within the biopharmaceutical industry, and what are companies doing about it? So whether you're a pharmacy student interested in learning more about fellowships or in pursuing a direct career in industry, a current or former fellow trying to figure out your next step, or just interested in a distraction from your workout, we've got you covered. And remember, the views and opinions we and our guests express on this show are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Welcome to today's show. On the last episode, we had James Rawls. As a reminder, James is the Vice President and Head of Global Regulatory Affairs at Synovian. If you missed it, flip back to the episode and take a listen. He does not disappoint. And if you have an entrepreneurial spirit, you're not going to want to miss this episode with Gerald Finken, the CEO of RXE2. Now, I'd never heard about RXE2 before meeting Gerald, but it was fascinating to hear how he, as a pharmacist, plans to disrupt our existing models for clinical research with his company. You know, Sergio, I like recording these introductions after we, we record the conversations because, you know, I already know that people are going to enjoy listening to Gerald's story. He just kind of has this infectious entrepreneurial spirit that, that gets me all revved up. Well, there you go, telling people how the sausage is made. As if we know how the sausage is made at this point. I mean, I Googled it. That makes me an expert, right? All right. Let's, uh, how about we talk to Gerald here? Let's do it. Okay. Today on the show, we have Gerald Finken, the CEO of RXE2. Gerald is a licensed pharmacist with almost 40 years of experience in the biotechnology and pharmaceutical industries. In 1997, he founded CSM, a clinical supplies packaging and labeling company, where he invented on-demand packaging and labeling, clinical trial research pharmacist services, and pioneered direct-to-patient services. In 2013, he founded CenterPoint Clinical Services and subsequently created the innovative sightless CRO model. In 2020, he launched RXE2, where he now serves as CEO. He focuses on innovation, disruptive business strategies, and growth opportunities. Gerald, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. First off, can you tell us a little bit more about your career journey? What were you up to before you started your own companies? Do we have a couple hours? (laughs) (laughs) It all began when I was 12. (laughs) Actually, it's a very interesting story, just how I got into it. My sister introduced me to pharmacists. She was on to medical school and said, you should be a pharmacist. And I said, sounds good to me. I know I'm not going to medical school. (laughs) (laughs) I like sports too much. Um, I I was really fortunate. I was going to be working at a chain pharmacy. And so all during my undergrad, I worked at a a thrift drug and uh, had my position all lined up. And then opportunity presented itself or fate, whatever you want to say. And I did a rotation at Sharing Plow in in the pharmaceutical industry. (laughs) And and that was my first rotation, my fifth year. And I just said, oh, my God, this is what I want to do. That's incredible. Life has changed. Yeah, life has changed. And so um, within the next three months, I totally like re-engineered my life, my focus. I started working on some research with some of the uh, the, uh, professors at the university. And by March of the following year, I had my job at ER Squibb and Sons. Wow. So from going from thrift drug to 
E.R. Scriven Sons, you know, quite a change. But the opportunity presented itself, and I took it. That's amazing. I, and I what spent, was that first yeah. uh, that first area that that first job you got out of uh, out of fellowship? So um, then it wasn't a fellowship. I got that right out of. I was just a five year BS pharmacy student. That's right. And so yeah. I went right into the industry with a BS in in with a pharmacist degree. Wow. I wish I had the background of a fellowship and the, and the farm D. Um, but I too right, had started a family early. I was married in my third year, had a baby right after I graduated and uh, life, life went on its happy way. And I'm blessed that still married. My, my kids still talk to me. So life is good. <laughs> You've done something right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, the first thing when I was there is I was, um, I, I got into the working as a bench chemist, but, Again, as chance would have it, they needed help in the sterile manufacturing of clinical supplies. And so when I got there, they said, yes, you're hired to be a bench chemist, but we really like you to work in the sterile area. So talk about getting your feet wet. Manufacturing and the clinical drug supplies was just always changing, new compounds, difficulties, right? And in a sterile suite, so every day I'm, I'm suiting up in a bunny outfit, worrying about particulates and, and microbe counts and, you know, talk about getting your feet wet. Um, so I spent the first like two and a half years, three years uh, manufacturing clinical supplies. And um, I did it so well that they said, why don't you just stay there and, and, and let someone else take over that bench, bench chemist, you know, the, mm. you, know, uh, yeah. you know, really it was in formulation development. And I said, yes, and never look back. I've been in clinical supplies pretty much the rest of my life um, in the industry uh, for the past 40 years. And so then the decision to, to leave pharma and, and start your own thing, what, what was the calculation behind that? It's a four-letter word called love. <laughs> My wife got her first teaching job out in Fargo, North Dakota. And so, <laughs> you know, at the Squib, we had merged, became Bristol-Myers Squib. Um, so I had a, a really nice position there, responsible for global clinical supplies. Versus being with my wife and my children in Fargo, North Dakota. And so no, I chose I love. Yeah. <laughs> and, I thought Fargo was like the epicenter of industry. Oh, you'd be surprised. We can talk about that, about, <laughs> you know, a very progressive uh, uh, state board of pharmacy. Uh, very yeah. progressive. As I learned later, um, try, try, try reciprocating to North Dakota. It's tough. I mean, you, you meet in person to, for, as any part of the exam for the jurisprudence. It, it's, it wasn't easy. Um, wow. But, but really moved, moved out from, from the industry because I, I was a pharmacist. And during my time, the 12 years I was Bristol-Myers Squibb, I did work part-time. I thought it was very important to keep my hands in the business, right? To get that people aspect, understand these drugs I'm manufacturing, they get approved. And now I see it on the shelf. And so like when I was at Bristol or at Squibb in the beginning, it was at Estrianam, which is now generic, but we, I was on the ground floor of manufacturing that, doing the packaging and labeling of that, getting it for clinical trials. And then to see it actually dispensing it as a pharmacist, it was a very uh, rewarding experience for me as, you know, being the pharmacist. When you decided to go off and start your own company, what were some of the unexpected challenges that you ran into? So the unexpected challenge is starting your own company. Um, a myriad of things, um, but it's, it's how you face those. It's, it's like the first thing is to, to go into business. Um, you know, prior to starting uh, CSM, uh, I did get uh, company venture funded. So my early stages when I was at uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb, I was working with a couple of guys and we, we got a million dollars of venture money to start a company. 
a packaging labeling company, which is my area of expertise. That didn't quite work out for me. So the next time when I wanted to start my own company, an opportunity presented itself. And I just said to the, I, I was consulting. This company needed uh, a service called returns and reconciliation of their drug supplies. And I said, I could do that back in Fargo. The head of uh, Pharma and D said, okay, um, give me a contract. So I put together a contract for $8,000 a month. And I said, I can do this. And she said, go ahead. So then me and Mr. Visa um, got together with my funding, $25,000, and opened the doors of a, wow. a 900-square-foot facility. And, um, you know, just I, I hired a, an assistant. And then comes the rest as we just kept growing, you know, doing more and more returns and reconciliation. The hardships are you have a client and then the drug doesn't get approved and that client goes away immediately. Then what do you do? Um, you know, you hire individuals and you, you want cash flow. So you're, you're consulting. So you start consulting more when a certain cash flow goes away because you still want to meet payroll. So the toughest things is those um, really the people issues of, of commitment that when you hire somebody, commit to them. Um, and that it's, it, it was important to me that when things got tough, I always say you just work harder, right? When there's an obstacle, just work harder. And so I'd consult, I'd, I'd, I'd be, I'd be consulting 80 to hundred hours a week, um, just to keep the doors open wow. at times, um, to, to keep us going. And, and I had pharmacists working for me and, um, and so even like in their skill sets were just unbelievable, which, which always was the cornerstone of like my packaging labeling company to keep that growing. I mean, it was uh, quite a ride, and the ups and downs at the beginning is is um, really all about cash flow, understanding how finances work. Um, the, the first, like I said, I, I was not going to get outside money, and so I had to use banks. And so you can only grow what your cash flow will let you grow. You know, what do you have in savings? Um, one of the toughest things um, for me was, you, you know, the the banks give you a line, right? So I had a line of credit of fifty thousand dollars. And had a million dollars of receivables. So, so oh, talk yeah. about a cash flow problem. Mm. So I was like ninety days out in my receivables, fifty thousand dollar credit limit in my bank, and they wouldn't extend it to me. So you get creative. You start going to other banks, see what they need. Um, so these are the ups and downs. You know, everybody always looks at the end, the twenty years, right? So zero dollars to a, eventually sold for two hundred fifty million dollars. Right. And, you know, one employee to we had 100, 150 plus employees, right, multiple locations. And they look at the end result. Very rarely look at those first 10 years, which are very, very hard um, and risky. And I mean, there's risky. a lot of risk associated with that. You know, you, your risk, too, was with a family, like you said, and 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 taking that risk when you're on your own is one thing. But you're you you took that risk with a family. What what kind of. What kind of drove you that? What's 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 your mindset when you're when you're taking these risks? When you're when you're moving on to entrepreneur new uh, new entrepreneurial opportunities? We kind of touched on it a little beforehand. I can, I think it would be important to share you know your your mindset and you, you almost your mantra. Yeah. So to be an entrepreneur at the time to be creative was really not the focus. Um, I want to go back. Yeah, you know, I'm a pharmacist and I love being a pharmacist. I love my profession, and I've been blessed that I have a passion for what I do and, and a passion for the industry. I love dispensing. I, I worked in the hospitals. I've worked in community, but this, the, what a pharmacy can do in the industry just, just drives me. And so that love for what I did was a big help. Now I absolutely have to have family support, you know, for my wife and my boys, 
it, you know, there were Christmases where I would, almost didn't make it home. You know, there were some holidays where, you know, travel delays and stuff. And, and sometimes on weekends I wasn't there, but it's a, it's a, it's a, a family commitment. Um, and to believe in one another, the good thing is my wife was teaching, uh, maybe not so good thing because you know, salaries and teaching, were, you know, so we, we were, we had a roof around our head and that's really what counted. And, um, and just a commitment by the family. Like even early on, I remember like hiring my son to sweep the floors, you know, so, you know, we'd uh, try to see what we could do to help in everybody chip in. So it really was following a passion first and foremost that kept things going, even in the most difficult of times. And of course, a core family value, you know, uh, we'll we'll get through this. Well, and speaking of difficult times, uh, it's 2020. We've got a COVID pandemic going on. um, And now you've started- a, a new company, RXE2. So, I mean, talk us through the, your latest venture. So we launched RXE2 in January prior to COVID. It just so happens that everything we're doing could assist in the COVID world, right? And in all aspects of clinical trials. And, and now we get into the entrepreneurial side of things, right? When we talk about like this new business, this new business is a very, very simple concept, and that's incorporating the practice of pharmacy into clinical research. Now, believe it or not, it's never been done before. There's no pharmacist role in clinical research. There are pharmacists working in clinical research. I, I myself was one, but there's no like chief pharmacist officer. There's no um, director of pharmacy, right? It, it's a pharmacist in a role. Versus when you think about it in the pharmaceutical industry and clinical research, it's all about patients taking medication, right? And yet there's really no pharmacist involvement. So what we believe is by incorporating the practice of pharmacy, we're going to totally disrupt the industry and we're already proving it. We're already doing it Um, in showcasing our dispensing methodology, totally disrupting the industry about how that's done, simplifying, drastically reducing costs, while the most important of all of this is improving quality. And we could talk about it on many levels, um, working with COVID. Now, you know, in RxE2 before COVID. Now, COVID hits. I think what COVID has shown the industry is its weaknesses in clinical research. And those weaknesses have always been there, right? But now it's, it's exacerbated. And so now the industry's Finally, like accepting like technology, looking at about decentralized trials, you know, really trying to take a look at driving home the idea of patient centricity, which came like the last couple of years, patient centricity has been a buzzword, but now it's really coming around to what does that mean? But, but we could dive in each one of those. And what I would say is just look at it from the flip side. And it's going to be a little bit different than what we currently think my belief is. And that's yeah, what RxC2 is about, looking at it differently. And another another key area right now in clinical trials is performing clinical trials where the population looks like the country you're look you're working in from a demographic standpoint. And so, how have you sought as using the resources of RxE two? How have you sought to address some of the diversity challenges within clinical trials so that the medications that are being tested are being tested in a representative population of the country in which it's being tested? You know, that's a great question, Alex. And one of the things, you know, addressing the diversity challenge, we believe like through COVID and decentralized trials, the technology platforms all say they're going to help with diversity. 
But I'd like to step back a second, and and I want to step back in the idea about where I was about a year and a half ago before I started RxE2. I was on a medical mission in Honduras, right? We're in Limon, right? And I'm down there at dispensing like chain store pharmacy like numbers, right? In in medications to patients. So here we are in abject poverty, right? But abject poverty does not mean ignorance or concern for one's health care or loved ones, the children in particular. People would walk miles to come and get their medication from the pharmacy. They would ask very intelligent, inquisitive questions of me as a pharmacist. They wanted to know as much as they can about how to be compliant and adherent. And these are individuals, right, that, you know, this the concept of, of you know, healthcare is everybody wants it. Every, right? And, and, and I was just stunned by the um, education. You know, they had one cell phone for 10 people, you know, but, but that's how they got information. That's their access. So yeah. with that came the concept of pharmacy for everyone everywhere, RxE2. And I mean everyone everywhere. So now we can bring it back out because my dream is, like I was thinking, you know how easy it would be to set up a clinical trial there? I could get 150 patients in a cardiovascular trial within hours. And they would all be adherent and compliant. Now, entering data, they'd have to come back to me, right? Because technology there is not available. So let's talk about this diversity issue right here in the States. The, the technology boom in clinical research and decentralization is all about clinical trial, it's all about technology. But let's talk about diversity and, and, and patient centricity mindset, right? Think about what's happening in education. One of the biggest problems are out there, not Everybody has an iPhone. Not everybody has a laptop. Not everybody has even access to the internet. So let's take away technology for a second because there's a large population, right, that yes, when you're in your, your central hubs, you know, and we talk about clinical trials in the regions, but, but actually the FDA just published a, an article, a publication about um, uh, diversity, actually looking at populations of where they are. You look at that map. There's large swaths of the U.S. that don't participate in clinical trials. So what we believe is that instead of decentralizing the technology piece, right, that everybody has to bring their own, they call it bring your own device. Well, what happens you don't even have a device? So are we going to give them a laptop? They never used a laptop. They don't, you know, it's maybe in school. So instead of that, let's turn it around. And what we take a look at is let's, let's, let's go to your pharmacy. And so in all those regions, I, I can tell you, there are pharmacies in each one of those locations or close enough. We all have access to healthcare. So let's turn it around that instead of trying to make the patient fit the clinical trial model, let's make the clinical trial model fit their, uh, what they know, their local doctor, their local pharmacist, their local healthcare provider. That sounds so like patient centricity. Patient centricity, but more importantly, real diversity. Be able to push this out to the areas because you don't have to come down like from Fargo to Minneapolis, you know, to, to the clinical trial. You don't have to drive 50 miles or 100 miles to get to that major academic institution. Bring the trial to me. And that's kind of what COVID's done, right? COVID has localized healthcare. And what's one of the key things right now in, in with COVID? The pictures they always show about like, right, getting the vaccines up. Pharmacies. All the pharmacies are open. You cannot say that for all the clinics. It's just not the case, let alone, right? Does a patient go to their pharmacy with their medicine? Yes, to do. Do they want to go to the hospital? Not really. So I think COVID has shown some holes in the current clinical research model where RxE2 
we're showing how it could be easily solved just by looking at it differently and incorporating the practice of pharmacy. And how does the remote monitoring of these patients work now, especially during COVID? Everybody's trying to say telehealth, which is a wonderful thing. Um, I want to point out that telepharmacy has been around since 1990, right? North Dakota had is already into their laws. It was already a law allowing pharmacies to talk to rural communities and actually dispense medication via technician, you know, 100 miles away. So, so the tele, telehealth, telemedicine, like is new, but it's not. It's been around for 30 years. Now we're starting to use it more as a wonderful thing. But what I say is one of the things that's missing, and we know this about with education today, right? Everybody talked about MOOCs, right? Massive online learning, right? And they're starting to find out that now we have it. It's been forced upon everybody. But how well is that working for the, for the universities and for the schools, right? Not everybody, right? There's this social interaction that we need. There's this person-to-person contact that we need. And so when I look at that, you you go down to your pharmacy, you still have that. You still have that one-on-one. You still go into the counseling booth. Yes, you and the pharmacist. And you're wearing masks. You stay six feet apart. You have hand sanitizer. You're good to go. And they have access to the local pharmacies. I, I can't say enough about diversity and the reality of, of when we talk about it. It's like I said, incorporated practice of pharmacy, right? Pharmacy for everyone, everywhere. And I mean everywhere. And by the way, you know, for, for candidates, for folks who are coming out of school, for students and fellows, I, these are the things that draw them to, to companies. You have companies with a robust diversity and inclusion program, the companies that are looking to, to solve these challenges. And so for pharmacists and, and students who might be interested in pursuing a path like this, you know, how is RxE2 disrupting it, the, this business model, and how can they get involved? how to disrupt it and get involved. We're already disrupting it, right? And the issue is going to be is change. And we all know with true disruptive innovation comes a lot of challenges, right? A lot of people fighting to prevent the change, right? So when I talk about bringing, incorporating the practice of pharmacy, bringing pharmacists in, probably the number one thing I'm looking at is improving quality, right? It's the idea that we have the in the commercial world, we have the doctor, patient, pharmacist triad. Why do we have that? And we know that when that's working, it's working very well, such with specialty meds, right? What we want to do is we want to make that happen in the industry. We want to bring and have that same triad, right? The doctor, pharmacist, patient triad, when we absolutely don't know the safety of the medication, we don't know the efficacy of the medication. So shouldn't the medication expert be on board? So disrupting, we're doing this, we're bringing it in, we're going to show how we're going to change. And when I talk about quality, I'll back up because I do want to get about the students. It's it's a very important step that I don't want to forget. But let's step back and we think about quality. Quality, the industry um, embraces quality, right? They say, you know, GMP and GCP, it's all about quality, quality risk management. But they look at it from an operational point of view. And let me explain. From a strategic point of view, how is the industry doing? Well, let's take a look. When nine out of 10 drugs go to the FDA, new molecular entities go to the FDA, they fail. So that means only one in 10 gets approved first time. That's terrible quality, terrible quality. Why is that? No one's asking that question. And I mean, there's many reasons for it, you know, you know, why, you know, everybody believes like their, their one drug, their study is going to be the one, but I'd bet against them every day of the week, nine out of 10 fail. All right. So we need to change that. 
I, I believe by incorporating pharmacists, we're going to make it five out of 10 that pass first time. That's, that's huge. I mean, you make that eight out of 10, that makes a big difference for patients, but you make that five out of 10, that that's monumental. And as you think about it, there's, there's the reason that drugs fail. It's, it's multifactorial. It could be safety. It could be change in practice. Uh, it could be, um, you know, some sort of efficacy that just falls just short of statistical or clinical, well, statistical significance, not necessarily clinical. But as you're thinking about where within the clinical trial pathway phase phases one through four, once we get into humans here, where is it that you feel like RxE2 can really make that biggest difference? You know, there's that drop off from phase one to two, phase two to three, phase three to approval. Where can you make that difference, the, the greatest difference? Or is it across the board? Where to make the greatest difference? Uh, it's it really when you think about the practice of pharmacy, it's when the patient needs counseling, right? So phase one, if you know it, like most phase one studies, there's a pharmacist dispensing that medication, right? That pharmacist is involved in the dispensing in the phase one units, right? So not so much there because that already occurs; they have access, right? The patients are sequestered, or right, and and so there's high level of oversight. It's really when you get into the phase two and a lot of the unknowns where compliance and adherence are critical, right? Retention, and we talk about like recruitment retention, right? And to the phase three, these these things are are the when I talk about the quality is is the area that I'd, I'd focus on. But we can also talk about phase fours, like why don't the industry run phase four trials? Because of all the noise, right? You can do it to the best of your intention, but because they're out there. You know, and it's really uh, with all the noise and without the medication expert to eliminate the noise, it's going to fail. So why start? So when I think about the overall process, right, of of this, you know, pharmacists getting involved, I'm not just wishful thinking this. I I know my 40 years of experience. I, I believe like, you know, we have one out of 10, right, gets approved. One of those out of the nine that failed is because the drug wasn't handled properly at the clinical site, wasn't properly dispensed, these little like little knife cuts, right? So I believe if you have the pharmacist involved who actually understands all about the stability, dispensing, the storage, instead of having, you know, 50 clinical sites, you have a central field pharmacy attending for the patients, right? With pharmacist oversight, with the initial counseling, you immediately get one more. But you know where the biggest difference is? We've already done counseling of clinical patients in clinical trials. I've already done it. We did eight clinical trials, 30,000 patient calls. Both drugs we worked on, both got approved. First time through the through wow. the FDA. Noon like our entities, first time getting approved. And I can tell you in listening to my pharmacist talk to patients in those trials and getting real-time feedback how to correct things, we're going to get another two of those drugs. We'll, we'll go to we'll four out of 10 just by properly dispensing according to state law requirements and having pharmacists counsel patients. Just those two simple things. Now, granted, there is efficacy problems, right? There are, but guess when we're going to find it out? Phase two. The failure I'm talking about is not two to three. The failure I'm talking about is we go all the way through the two pivotal trials in phase three and give it to the FDA and then it fails, right? And so when I think about this, what's going to happen is we're going to eliminate this, the medications that shouldn't be in phase three anyhow, because you have the expert, the expertise, the oversight, and just with the counseling then to say, okay, we know what's going on real-time, real-time feedback from the patients, a diverse population, right, instead of the professional patient, because only 2% of the population, 3% of the population participates in clinical trials. I want to go after the 95% of the people that don't participate in clinical trials. 
So this so, is where, so when I'm talking about five out of 10, I'm not just pulling this number out of my hat and say, this is wishful thinking. Remember the idea about the idea of having a vision and knowing it. I know this is going to happen. I just know it's going to happen. So have you been able to maintain hiring during the pandemic? Are you, are you still adding positions and how's, how's the pandemic impacted hiring? Let's go back and then to the question about what the students and what they can do in the hiring. So first of all, um, looking at decentralizing, we're, we're trying to be as virtual as we can be. And so our model is not to create like more silos. Our model is to, is to use what's already there. So when I talk about local, right, what does a patient want? They want to use their local pharmacist. They don't want to use me down in, like in Fargo or in some other central location. They don't, they don't want to use my doctor and my decentralized clinical trial where I have 50, you know, doctors licensed in all 50 states in my central. No, they want to use their local doctor. So we're onboarding pharmacies and using pharmacies that already exist, right? We're focusing on independent pharmacies to start. We've got many of them signed on already. We will be signing on. The idea we're bringing on technology to help us with scalability so that we can leverage right? And change the way clinical trials are run so that we can take the clinical trial to the patient in their local community. Right? Then comes the idea of like we talk about the students. So the idea is to create, we want to create thousands of jobs, both in the community, because now the pharmacist who's already like part of the MTM service, of course, I'll use that term loosely, but the, their counseling services is to add this on, to make it just another part of what they offer in the pharmacy. And they'll be hiring pharmacists and they'll be doing enough trials where they'll have pharmacists working on just the clinical trials. And then I can say the same thing is going to start to occur in the industry. And this is what's important for the students. Create the environment out there for this. Start asking about, I want to, I want to create the department. Just like they've created the innovation departments in all the big pharmas, they've created the patient centricity departments in all the big pharmas. Create the pharmacy department in the big pharmas. Let's have so a group of pharmacists overseeing the protocol, how the studies run, how the medication is being taken. So it's, it sounds like you can actually maintain a relatively lean business model that a lot of this is decentralized. And your, your, your function is, you know, it, in coordinating and making sense of all of it. But that, you know, much of the work is still going on at, at the local pharmacy. Yeah. You know what the lovely thing about this is? Right. I want to utilize 10,000 independent pharmacists, pharmacies, right? with these entrepreneurial individuals who started their own right, pharmacy, launched their own pharmacy, brilliant individuals, and I'm going to use their knowledge. I'm just going to extrapolate and get their knowledge. And this is where, like, really, for RxC2, it's about our service, right, and, and onboarding the pharmacies, pushing information, pulling information, and it's really about pulling information, but a technology so we have scalability so that we can have 10,000 pharmacies, Right. And when we talk about it, I don't need like 20 clinical sites, I want to use 100 pharmacies, right, to do a clinical trial, because it's just that simple. I, you know, the bricks and mortar, someone's got to pay for that. We don't want that. We want to run and use what's already out there. Use the expertise that's already out there. When, when you start talking about expertise, so I, I worked in an independent pharmacy, and I could see how that entre entrepreneurial spirit resonates within an independent pharmacy. The, the individual I worked for, he oozed that, that type of enthusiasm. And, but it brings me back to what we have here is this is an IPHO podcast and we're talking with you. You've started RxE2. You have this vision for pharmacists. And IPHO really has this strong group of industry pharmacist-focused individuals. So how, how do you think that IPHO and RxE2 can collaborate? 
is 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 it, we need the collective thinking. We need all of us in a collective thinking to know this is where we're going to go. Right? That it's for the better, right? It's to improve outcomes for patients in clinical trials, get more medications, the best medications we can to market, not have them not pass through the FDA because of because we missed something during the trial. And so when I think about for the students, it's to start asking, right? Where's the pharmacist involvement in this? You know, how how can we get better at what we're doing? Right? To talk to the innovation center, talk to the patient centricity center, get involved in those groups as a pharmacist. Right. And and really, um, the, the, the why of RxE2 is to incorporate the practice of pharmacy. Right. And there's always two whys. Of course, you know, we have to meet the financial needs. Right. And so the financial pushes one way. But the why RxE2 is doing this is to incorporate the practice of pharmacy. I need collective. I need a collective hold to be thinking and knowing this is the way it's going to go. And so if we keep that in mind that we are going to help them improve the quality of clinical research by getting more actively involved with our degree, which means the counseling of patients, right? Which means overseeing the, the you know, the, the adherence, compliance, and, and everything we learned in the clinical rotations. You know, the idea of what's already going on out in the community practice, right? We're, we're already doing, like in specialty, specialty drugs, the way they're being uh, dispensed these days is clinical research. Except that, like, it's approved, we still want to keep control of it so there's not, you know, um, off-label use. So, so I, what I would say to the, to the individual students is, is create your future within the industry, right? It, you're, you don't have a center for you. Create your center. Of course, what I can say, too, is, is like, help me help you. Exactly. <laughs> you know? yeah. Help me help you. And, and for all the students, keep following us because we're, we're going to have podcasts just like this. We're going to have information we're going to share. We, we are actually going to have a CTRP certification, clinical trials research pharmacist certification. So you have a certification that says, I know how the pharmacist is to be involved in clinical research. And you can be within the industry. You can work for others. It To me, is it saying that we've taken it all look so that it's, a, again, like any certification, um, but a little bit uh, more focused of taking our profession of how it's supposed to work. So uh, Dr. Christina Schlecht, who's my chief pharmacist officer, who's, who's in charge of those 30,000 patient calls, right? She has a just a plethora of information that she gathered, you know, that's that we have to pull out of her and, and let others, right, learn what she learned during those trials. And collectively then, as a collectively, we need to collect, uh, get that information to, bottom line, prove outcomes, prove patient outcomes, get more drugs approved. I, I just want to ask one last question here, because sure. I, I tell you, your, your enthusiasm is contagious here. And I know that we have... Uh, I'm hoping, I, I, I don't know if we have it, but I'm hoping that we have enthusiastic, motivated individuals listening to you, your, your talk here. And what, what's something you want to leave people with before we conclude? What's something that you believe can be that one factor that you'd like to really leave on this, on this audio here, just to say, here's where I was, here's where I, where, here's where I went and here's where I've come. And this is what's helped me get there. Follow your dreams, follow your passion. And maybe it's not the practice of pharmacy. Um, you know, to be committed to that, uh, I never lost sight of that. Again, my passion. I mean, you could talk to anybody I know. They they know they know I'm a pharmacist. <laughs> they know I'm an advocate. Um, 
But I think, and, and I've done enough uh, reading through the, you know, self-help books, business models, you know, all the, you know, innovations like we, you know, that I did like Clayton Christensen, you know, disruptive innovation, you know, all those things. And I think it all comes down just to the basics of, right, follow your heart. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that'll do it for this episode. We appreciate you spending your time with us. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and give us a rating. You can also visit us on the IPHO website to provide feedback and learn how to get involved. Please do it because we need your help. Until next time, take care and stay safe.